What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, West Cracks Movie Podcast. Chaos reigns. How did I? How did I knew you were gonna do that? <laughs> yeah, I I thought about it last night that he was gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta. Yeah, you gotta. I'd actually be disappointed if you didn't. Uh, my name is Jared. Today we're joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan in the house. What's up? In the house and in the house for the first time is Amanda. How's it going, Amanda? It's it's fine. I mean, I just watched Antichrist, so it's like <laughs> it's a it's a moment for me. Um, but I I'm just good. watched. Yeah. Literally you just, just finished the end credits. I don't know what you're feeling right now. It's but a lot of different things. I'm ready to dissect. It. Yeah, I'm ready to. And we got Austin. Yo, what up, Amanda? I bet you don't want to see a pair of scissors right now, do you? Oh, oh God. God! Come on, Austin. <laughs> I'm like gonna Christ. faint. I heard that like four people fainted at con. Yeah, and I like would have been one of them. Hmm. Um, so today we're talking. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing Antichrist. Yes, Antichrist. The 2009 celebration. Wait, we got to get a golf clap in. I mean, and it deserves a bigger clap. Give it I, a bigger dude, clap. Where's the bigger clap? We need to update. Oh, we got to get. Yeah. All right. All right. It deserves it. The 2009 film, written and directed by Lars von Trier, starring Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg. As always, we're going to go around and see <laughs> what people thought about the movie. <laughs> we're going to go with, uh, what was it like the first time you watched it, and what was it like revisiting it? <laughs> Let's start with Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with... Um, my roommate thought I was dying because I was screaming at the computer. Like, I couldn't believe what was happening. I'm reeling. Yeah. It, so this is your first time seeing this it? This is my first time seeing it. I knew nothing about it going in except that Lars von Trier is a sick fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, wow. It really, I knew that it was like gonna turn. Like I, I read the synopsis and knew that there was like torture involved, but I was not ready. And what was funny was for the first 75%, I was so fucking bored and I was like, nothing's happening in this movie. <laughs> and then all of a sudden everyone was castrated. So it was a lot. A lot. Have you seen other Lars von Trier movies? I saw Nymphomaniac. Oh, okay. One and part one. Part one, a film, and did not like it. But yeah, that's easily that movie's not that good. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's my. I, I think that's actually my only other Lars von Trier that I've seen. But mm -hmm. you saw one that at least was explicit, so you were primed for something that was going to be similarly explicit, perhaps more disturbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say that's fair. All right. Uh, Austin, what about you? Yeah, so it might sound really ironic or maybe not, but this film caused quite a stir in the theological and philosophical blogosphere in like <laughs> 2009, 2011. And it's kind of a joke that if you're going to do graduate work in theology, you have to see Malick's Tree of Life and Von Trier's Antichrist. And um, <laughs> and so if people are interested, there are a shitload of think pieces out there from, like I said, circa 2009, 2010, 2011 on Antichrist and a lot of the themes that are in it. So I saw it then and, and um, it was more like I engaged it as a piece of homework, but I've seen it a few times since then because Lars Von Trier is one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. So um, I revisit... Fuck. <laughs> but... So I revisit some of his films periodically, but this is one of the ones that I've kind of intentionally only skipped around. Like I don't need to see all of it in order to kind of get what I've wanted out of it. But last night I watched it for the, the like the whole way through for the first time, probably since the first time I watched it. Um, even though I've seen it in pieces and like pieces of it, like dozens and dozens of times over the years. And uh, it was pretty fucking shocking still. Like even though I knew everything yeah. that's happening, it's still... You know, I mean, and not just the torture bits, but 
the creepy, uh, kind of scary uh, elements that, um, like even when she kind of starts to yell at herself, I don't remember what the words are that she's saying, but where you see the kind of almost other side of her kind of coming out at the end, which is kind of creepy and weird. And it, it, it's pretty fucking shocking even now uh, knowing what to fully expect. So don't feel bad, Amanda, because I've seen it and been prepared and still got fucked up from it. All right, Ryan, give it to us. I mean, this is the granddaddy of the Von Trier movies, as far as I'm concerned. This is the best one. I think oh. it... You think I this mean, is his I, best I, I, film? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. If you don't like this movie, I think you can't be a Von Trier's head like me. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, to me, it's, it's it, oddly enough, his most uh, one of his most accessible ones, right? Because it tells, like, if you think about the story, the arc of... Figure and the big twist. I mean, spoiler spoiler alert now. But like, you know, when you find out the big twist of her knowing her son was gonna fall out that window, I mean, what a just operatic. Just she is the antichrist. You know, um, I felt that moment every time, or I feel that moment every time I see the movie. Just like like master stroke of of storytelling with his usual transgress transgressive. Like pretty much, we've kind of talked about it before. Like a trolley filmmaking sensibility you know where you can never really tell are you trying to tell me something right now or are you just trying to shock me you know Mm -hmm. with Lars von Trier and I think it works in the vague you know for you not knowing it how uh, he means it Um, but yeah I love this movie a lot like I love how shocking it is you know like you guys said it still holds up Um, as far as and in terms of a a film as a Filmmaking wise, like I let the slow mo. This is the first time I'd ever seen that like shot with that weird Alexa camera where it slows it down, like the walnuts or whatever falling, the acorns, you know, things like that. The raindrops, the kid falling down, like that cinematically blew my mind the first time I'd seen it. Just how in focus and detailed all that stuff was. Yeah. Um, And then just the way, effective way he used it. Uh, uh, So I thought that was awesome. The storytelling was cool. I usually don't like movies that are like, like broken up in chapters, but this worked, you know, really well. Mm. Um, I like the parable aspect of it, um, the open-endedness of it, which sometimes I don't like. I, it's really hard to do despair well in movies, you know. Like for and this movie nails it. Just like I feel, you know, I've never experienced that, but I feel for these people. Mm. Um, anyway, as far as what it's saying, obviously we'll get into it, but you know. Um, kind of like your, what, what uh, it could be read like Jared's take on aud- audition, bitches be crazy. <laughs> That's what he, yeah, I correct. said that was, that was a take. A take, right. I'm not saying it was your take, but it was a take that you could take away. But I don't think that that's all that this movie's saying. I mean, I definitely, they kind of explicitly say it in the movie, you know, nature is cha- chaotic. Fuck. You know, it doesn't give a shit about you, you know? So I like that in a movie. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, he's awesome. This movie's awesome. Yeah, you know, I saw it in theaters around when it came out in two thousand nine. I brought my roommate to it, and it was weird because when I saw it, I was kind of the I was in the place of Von Trier because I had read that this movie was really fucked up, and I brought my roommate to it, telling him nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> I basically fuck. just, I just yeah, I just trolled my roommate. And I guess for that reason, just seeing him reeling in being tortured, I was able to enjoy the movie and I've seen it since. And I really, 
admire the film for how effective it is, how smart some of its directing is, how beautiful it is. But I got to say, this time when I watched the movie, I think the movie really succeeded in its intended effect, which was to make me feel like shit. Because this movie like ruined my day yesterday. It really fucked me up. (laughs) And not not only the scenes of genital mutilation, but also just Charlotte Gainsbourg's performance is so harrowing and so deeply disturbing. Uh, I mean, it was rough. But at the end of yeah, the day, I still love the movie. So I think like my overall sentiment towards this movie is, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes. yeah, I, I had a good time reading about this movie. And I'm really interested to hear about more what the th- theological community or the theology community, whatever kind of community it is, has to say about this movie. But yeah, there's going to be a lot to talk about. So let's just dive right into the recap. After the tragic death of their infant child, an unnamed therapist husband decides to take it upon himself to coach his unnamed wife through their prolonged grief. When his efforts at home prove fruitless, he decides to take her to the site of her greatest fear, the woods. They arrive at their cabin in the woods called Eden. He continues to challenge her to face her pain, but to mixed success. One night, he goes into the attic and witnesses a stash of notes on her thesis about gynocide, or the killing of women, and sees that as she studied it, her sanity started to waver. She started to believe that women are evil. He eventually discovers that their son's feet were deformed by her, who deliberately put his shoes on the wrong way, contributing to the fall that took his life. She accuses him of wanting to leave her, and then proceeds to mutilate his genitals and screw a cement block onto his ankle. Her rage eventually subsides, and she tells him that when the three beggars arrive, someone must die. It's then revealed that she saw their son seconds before he fell to his death, but being in the throes of sexual ecstasy, chose to ignore it and let him die. She then mutilates her own genitals. The three beggars arrive, he takes the cement block off his ankle and kills her. On his way out of the forest, he sees a vision of the three beggars and faceless women roaming through the woods. End of movie. Yeah, so, um, God, where do you guys want to start? Well, I think think one thing that's interesting is both you and Ryan um, said the same thing, that she... That, the, that there's like a reveal at the end that supposedly intimates that she knew um, and that, that somehow she uh, wanted it to happen that her son falls out the window. And I think that, that that's obviously one reading of it. But I think a more interesting reading is the Freudian elements. You know, they intentionally mention Freud, the one bit where there's kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod, where she looks at her husband and uh, is kind of like, oh, you know, oh, Freud right. is, Freud doesn't exist in modern psychology, right? He's completely been disreputed or whatever. And so I think there's an intentional wink, wink, like, ah, oh, but that's not really the truth because this is a very Freudian um, film. So I wonder if we couldn't also say that one of the f- essential Freudian elements is this problem of like misremembering. And I think this fits into the larger theological elements that we can get into later. But that you always misremember the past, that the memories that you form in the present, they're never actually accurate. Uh, they're always just kind of fabulations of the present as you're reconstructing the past. Um, and so you're kind of projecting new meanings into them. So it's not, I, I think that you could say, ah, she really was the Antichrist, but I don't think that's it. It's more that nature itself is corrupted and you can never go back to this Edenic state, even though their house is called Eden. And so because of that, this desire to go back is always something that you're going to misremember and misrecognize, and you're always going to distort it based on these other elements. So I think that's kind of something that we could think about as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm not 
Yeah, I mean, although I put it there in you agree in the recap, I agree that it's up for debate whether or not it's her guilt that she's projecting some sort of blame onto herself for seeing the kid. You know, maybe that it may not be actually how the turn how the events transpired. Oh, man, definitely not. Like, well, for one, I was being hyperbolic earlier when I said she's the antichrist. I mean, you know, just in the colloquial sense, she's she's uh, well somebody up. well some you know, we'll get into that i mean right, but, something is the antichrist sure but, 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 but all nature I'm, is the antichrist right uh uh, uh but I, I i i mean it's she's not like the devil with the red with red horns um underneath um but austin so y- y- you really think that she is uh, that the big reveal at the end is to say oh is lars von Trier saying Oh, she's just misremembered this whole thing, and that it's like some implants. It was such a traumatic event that she had this weird post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, you know, memory loss. I don't think that's it at all. It's totally about how contrived and conniving and evil she is. I don't think so. I don't know. I feel like because it's interesting because, like, she does think no matter what, like, she thinks she failed as a mom, and I could see what Austin's saying about it being like a literal imagery of like the way she feels like she failed her kid i also think that this movie's too formless to really be able to apply a term like a big reveal because that it was shot like a big reveal it's like you, you you've seen it's a motif through the movie you're seeing the same black and white you know shots of them i know I, I and i think that that's maybe i mean we're talking it's about a Trier payoff, here. Though, it's a know? it's a payoff it's, it's, not it's a, definitely emulating the style of a payoff, but it could just be a Von Trier troll, or at least put there, in a sense... Disagree to- with all of you. <laughs> well, think about this, too. So so at the bit that we're kind of uh, discussing around is that she sees him, the boy, and then she continues to have sex because she's caught up in the thralls of enjoyment. She's like, ah, fuck it. I want to pursue my own libidinal desires, right? But at the beginning, the boy walks by the room and watches them have sex and they're unaware of him and then he jumps out the window. So what I think is that there's something interesting that's almost like the little boy is brought into this conjugal relationship where what are mommy and daddy doing? You know, mommy is the object of my satisfaction and daddy is the object of the thing that's thwarting me from getting my object of satisfaction. Therefore, I'm going to walk out the window. And it's not like I'm going to kill myself. But again, I think that Von Trier is intentionally juxtaposing her seeing him at the end, but also him seeing her at the beginning and kind of trying to throw, it's a myth to try to say, let's explore these thematic concepts rather than try to be so literal with interpreting. So I agree with Jared. It's too formalist, I think, to say that there's just like some sort of Bong Joon-ho reveal. Well, I think that the the kid was going towards the window because kids like windows, right? Is that do kids like windows? Yeah, they just like open <laughs> doors and they want to go, you know, say, but but then the the woman wasn't, I mean, she hates this kid, basically, is the reveal. She, she's she been deforming its feet. Why would you do that? And, you know, and, and I mean, well, she doesn't give all, a fuck okay, about but, anything. Okay, but even if you were to she, make that argument, which obviously, I think if you, it is a reading of the film. We're not saying. I think right. you're all you're arguing is that it is a has a definitive meaning, whereas right. we're saying that maybe it doesn't, or maybe I, there are multiple readings. We agree that obviously there is enough. You're saying it's obvious, and I'm saying. Well, no, that, I'm that, saying that, obviously just, there is enough. No, I'm not saying so. I'm saying it's obvious that there is enough evidence to suggest that your reading is valid, <laughs> but we're also pointing oh, yeah, to you. other av- other evidence to suggest that there could be all, an okay. alternative reading. But even if you were to make the argument that 
she deliberately misformed his feet so that he would one day jump out of a window. That's a bit of a difficult thing. No, just to make his life hell, you know? Well, yeah, because I think it's important to think, too, that that nature, I think, is clearly the Antichrist here. Because the idea that, that nature is Satan's church is important. They're going to Eden. They're unnamed. They're man and woman, kind of like Adam and Eve, which just, Adam just means man um, in, in ancient Hebrew, right? Uh, that's what the word kind of derives from. Um, and you know, we have to remember the biblical narrative then. Eve is the one who brings sin into the world. She's the one who gets blamed. But what's the biblical narrative? She will be saved through childbirth. She will be saved by procreating. And what does nature mean? The word natura means being born. And so this idea is, is that natality is something that philosophers and theologians talk about, this idea of giving birth, of like the efflorescence of life or something like that, right? And this whole film is the opposite of that. It's like, no, nature isn't life-giving. Nature isn't something that will save us. Nature is corrupting, and it's violent, and it's chaotic, and it will kill you. And so she isn't a person that is named Janet or whatever who has an identity that hates her son. She is supposed to be a placeholder to represent how nature corrupts even the feminine, even though the idea is, uh, and uh, this goes to the heart of her research, right, which was exploring how women were abused and corrupted and um, attacked and violated by men, but rather what she does is she internalizes the violence of nature itself and turns all of that against everybody and says, no, even this thing that is supposed to be pure, that's supposed to save us all and bring life through birth is itself corrupted because it's just chaos. And that's what she, I think, stands in for. I mean, I do feel like, and I just read a bunch of like scholarly discussions about this movie where everyone disagrees with me. I do feel like fundamentally like it's a sexist film because you could never have a male character behave this way. It literally relies on everything we have preconceived notions about, about women being hysterical because literally every five minutes she's either crying or fucking or screaming or just like... Like and like literally, I don't know how Charlotte Gansberg pulled off such a good performance because mm. there's no motivation to anything like it's it's just bananas. So I feel like, OK, so there's that element at the same time. It's kind of interesting because there is like it. I feel like it also is about like motherhood and how like she like she can't have sex anymore because she's a mom and like she has sex and then her kid dies and like she can't she has to write her thesis but she can't finish her thesis because her kid is crying so like at the same time there are elements that like are kind of feminist so it's very confusing for me yeah this is one of the most interesting discussions about the film is that there seems to be a lot of discussion of whether is the film misogynistic or is it about misogyny (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what I was just going to say. I think that that's the really interesting ambiguity. What you just said, she is the hysteric in the Freudian sense. And again, I think that the Freudian themes are intentional. I think that they mention Freud on purpose so that you are thinking, is this woman the hysteric? And am I then saying that all women are hysterical like Jared and Ryan were joking, bitches be crazy? Or is it like I'm trying to challenge this idea that there is even a division itself between the man and the woman and that violence is masculine and that women are not violent and I'm just trying to say no nature itself will corrupt everything and it corrupts us through the very maternal 
things that we think are supposed to save us through life giving, but they don't want to give life. They just want to fucking kill because it's nature's like scary. A, this is such a side note, but it's like funny because in film school, like every film professor would talk about Freud a lot and every book, film book would talk about Freud a lot. And I would talk to my friends in psychology who were like, Freud is old, old newsman, like only film majors care about Freud. So it's like, <laughs> I almost feel like it's an inside film joke that like Lars von Trier is like, using Freud while like also saying, oh, yeah, we all know that Freud's irrelevant, but filmmakers are still obsessed with him. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, though, because I would say that, well, I, I don't think it's true that in psychology, Freud is it because psychodynamic therapy is still extremely important, which comes out of Freud. It's just the literal kind of weird ego psychology interpretation of Freud that's been disreputed for the most part. But the influence of Freud and the influence of the unconscious that gets developed later is so influential and it's so prominent. It's just that basically what people mean by that is that, oh, do you really just want to fuck your mom, bro? Which is never what Freud even said anyway. So it's really a misinterpretation of Freud that is disreputed. But if you look at cinema and if you look at like the themes that are exploited, like it's fucking everywhere. We talk about Freud all the time on this podcast and not just because we're kind of like film geeks, but also because it's fucking there, man. Like it's there in our psychology, like that we do things that we don't know why we're doing them and what's going on and we misremember things. And I think that's something that, that Von Trier intentionally is exploring, you know? What do you guys think about Willem Dafoe's character and how does he function in this? Because I want to stay on the whole, is it misogynistic or is it about misogyny thing? Because mm-hmm. You mean he? He. Yes. Yeah. What are we <laughs> supposed to think about him? Because I've seen some readings that say that he's driving her to insanity, that he's being too overbearing. He's being arrogant in his insistence on reason. And it's because of him that that drives her to this place of insanity. And then once again, on the other hand, there's just bitches be crazy. But- uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll be honest, the first time I saw the movie, I thought of Willem Dafoe as purely a victim, just a, a helpful guy trying to help out. <laughs> yeah, basically. Wait, but, that's but, hilarious. But, Literally, like, the number one rule of psychology is, like, you can't psychoanalyze your own family that's like literally number one like just the fact that he thinks he can do that is so fucking arrogant yeah and she says that to him in the movie for sure right right so it's like acknowledged but yeah she he loves she okay (laughs) he loves she and he'll do anything for her for she I think he hates her. By the, from the beginning? He's like, yeah, he's like, let's go no. exploit your biggest fear so that you can get over grieving your child. I think he's punishing it's her. It's called immersion therapy, Amanda. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> like, not even. Yeah. Amanda, what do you think about, do you think that he is like criticizing the masculine tendency towards dominance? Or do you think that he's just kind of like repeating it? Like what's 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 oh, what's I think Trier he's, doing? I think with him? he's repeating it. I think he's like pretty yeah. simple. Um, he's like an arrogant therapist who thinks he can fix his wife, or or he's also like kind of. Oh wait, sadistic. did you mean he as in he or he as in Von Trier? Austin? I meant he he. Oh, I was just. Well, no, I, yeah, yeah. I, I was saying like, do you think that Von Trier, like, uh, how is Von Trier treating Willem Dafoe's character? I think he's supposed to be like an arrogant, self-absorbed, like masculine id who thinks he can fix everything but at the same time also kind of like enjoys driving his wife into hysteria (laughs) you think he enjoys it was so yeah do you think do you think he enjoys the violent sex that he gets from it even though he tries to like he tries to say no do you think there's something in the struggle that he actually does enjoy 
Because, I mean, this is one of the things that psychoanalysis will say, that everything comes from some sense of enjoyment. Even when you kind of repeat something that you don't like to do, it's because you enjoy the not liking it, right? So it's like he gets this, mm-hmm. like, violent, weird sexual uh, ex- uh, relations with her, but he's kind of like, no, no, we can't do this. But then he, he gives into it. Do you think that he, like, wants to do that, that there's something abusive about that or problematic about yeah, that? Yeah, probably. I mean, everything about, like... The therapeutic relationship in this movie is so problematic. I have a question, having only seen Nymphomaniac, is every female character in a Von Trier movie like pathological about sex in some way? Because I no, feel no. like breaking the waves, yes. I feel like but I feel like dark, he's no. terrified of female right. sexuality and he patholo- he like pathologizes it. Like, I mean, in general, his female leads go through a lot. I mean you could Bjork say I mean what hates his guts. Whether yeah, it's a he. She was in Dancer in the Dark. Whether or not it's exploring female sexuality, he's always either directly or indirectly torturing his female stars in his movies. Yeah, I don't even think it's exploring. I think it's literally just patho- like pathologizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's a really interesting documentary on behind the scenes of Dogville and Nicole Kidman and Car- Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård, is that his sure, name? Sure, yeah. And uh, and it's like behind the scenes of, of Von Trier working with the two of them. And there's some pretty brutal scenes in Dogville as well. And Nicole Kidman, you can tell she's infuriated with him. But at the same time, in a weird sense, you know, a lot of performers, and it depends on the actor, of course, but a lot of performers really enjoy, maybe that's their pathology, right? That That's their neurosis, is that they enjoy having somebody kind of push them to these limits to release some sort of quote-unquote true performance or whatever. And so it's really interesting to watch. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a behind-the-scenes on Dogville, and it's absolutely fantastic. And it gives you a little bit kind of an insight into his method and his approach and then his relationship with actors that might that might uh, delve into that a little bit. I mean, like, does anybody think he likes women? Von Trier? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know him personally. I mean, I no, but no, like, them. from his movies, like... Um... I don't know. Like once, so for example, I'm going to read. So there's a there's a a professor of history at Burbeck College named Joanna Burke who wrote an article in the Atlantic about this, and she writes extensively about women's history with like sexual violence and stuff like that. And she is actually quite. She defends this movie. Mm -hmm. She says the man's violence is the heartless man, meaning Willem Dafoe's character, Mm -hmm. is the heartlessness of rationality. Patronizingly, he sneers at the woman's research project on gynocide. He's a rationalist cognitive therapist who bullies her into exposing her inner demons. In contrast, the woman embraces the mysterious, uh, the mysterious uncanny energies of the unconscious and unknowable elemental forces. Her violence against the man and her own body is unbounded. The scenes of her crushing his penis and then snipping off her clitoris and labia are graphic, but it's not designer violence intended to appeal and titillate in the same breath, nor does it inspire compassion. Von Trier simply presents cruelty as there, serving no liberating function for the audience. Pain, its infliction, and its suffering is integral to life. Von Trier has admitted that, of all of his films, Antichrist comes closest to a scream. It exposes us to, it exposes us to an untamed, erotic, and aggressive aesthetic without redemption. It jolts us out of a passive voyeurism and in despair, leaves us, in the words of Handel, crying over a cruel fate. And uh, the Handel thing that he's talking about, so the intro- the the song in the beginning when it's black and white slow motion uh, and the kid is jumping out the window is a song called Let Me Weep from Handel's opera Rinaldo. Um, yeah, 
I think that's interesting because we have to remember, too, what are the circumstances under which the kid dies? It's them having sex, which, is, again, is one, an act of pleasure, but two, also a procreative act. So I think, again, there, there are some really interesting juxtapositions that Von Trier is exploring here. And I think that the author from the historian that you were, or was it a historian that you were talking about? Uh, she's um, a professor of history. So yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think that, that the author's right in one sense that when you juxtapose images like that, it isn't because you're just kind of saying um, that it's this versus that, but rather you kind of like blow up the dichotomy so that you can say, well, let's kind of scrape underneath the surface and see what we can release. And I think what's released is this idea that, again, nature itself is inherently mysterious and dark and chaotic. And the woman that she, she embraces that, but he cannot because um, and again, this is in psychoanalytic terms, particularly in Jacques Lacan, male sexuation or male subjectivity always has to control. Mm. It always has to like uh, cover over things. And that's what is sometimes referred to as like phallogocentrism, um, as in like phallus and then logos is the word or the arche or the beginning. So you have to control things. You have to define things through the science of logic. Everything is determinant. And eccentrism is that that's how everything is. So male sexual subjectivity under kind of conditions of bourgeois Western life, European life, is all about control, whereas female sexuation has this other element to it. It's defined as the non-all, uh, as this kind of like, it's not covered over. It's the mysterious. It's the rejection of that determinate tendency. And I think that that's kind of what's being played out here. Okay, so I have two responses. First is that I don't get how it's subversive or like non-misogynistic to make a movie that's basically like men are rational and women are nature because that's literally like the stereotype that has been used to like dismiss women from like public life and like living in the rational world but secondly i actually think it's kind of interesting the man never expresses any guilt about the kid dying only the woman has guilt and that kind of makes me think that von trier like knew, like was was playing with the idea of like maternal guilt and in an interesting way because like he yeah kn- yeah I've heard but do you not think that the fact that he does that he is kind of repressing his own guilt does that make him a hypocrite maybe I've heard he cries at the funeral he cries at the funeral that's not guilt though I mean that's like your kid died you're sad well right but what, what's I'm the I'm saying like the mom is literally like I killed him because I wasn't there to stop him from climbing out the window. Right, but he kind of, you know, they're talking about the rationale, you know, he, he's being rational, like, you didn't know, like, it's 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 not your fault, you know, like, why feel guilty? It's an accident. So I, I have a, to your first point about saying that women are chaotic and outside of rationality as being misogynistic. First of all, I don't know. I think that your reading of it is super valid. I think one of the reasons this, this film is interesting to talk about is the fact that there's this kind of bizarre uh, gray area here. But I read this essay by Ian Christie, uh, and he has a pretty interesting thing to say about this. So he talks about the dramatic use of the addict in which she hides all her research materials. And he likens this to the Charlotte Bronte book, Jane Eyre, Mm -hmm. and how in, I don't know, I mean, we probably all read it in high school, but in that book, there's a notorious mad woman in the attic. And then he says that contemporary feminist perspectives will interpret this as an indictment of 19th century patriarchy casting women as either angels or demons. Mm -hmm. So it all just depends on if you're reading this movie as, is it a, is it a criticism of that kind of casting women off to this kind of more angel slash demon primitiveness or is it just embracing it i think that's that's the weird question that made so much that has made this such a 
controversial film. I think this is where the this is where the fundamental misunderstanding of psychoanalysis needs to be kind of brought in. Most people think that that psychoanalysis is essentially men are X, women are Y. And now there is some of that in Freud, right? He does treat women as the hysteric, right? Um, But it's been expanded in particularly like in somebody like Lacan. Lacan has a famous phrase where he says there is no sexual relation. And what he means by that is that basically that human bodies, uh, they basically, they fill in a place or a structure in society. That's why he refers to it as sexuated or sexuation. And so when he's talking about male subjectivity versus the feminine subjectivity, it's not that males and females or men and women as genders that are already constituted by society, but it's the place that is embodied based on a certain power structure, we might say, or a symbolic structure. And so the male in this particular case, the he, is the obsessive, whereas the female is the hysteric. And the way that we would interpret that is that the male in his rationality is covering the truth with a lie. He has to put words on everything. He has to use science. But the woman, she, is actually speaking to the truth, and that's the hysterical discourse. That doesn't mean that women, as in the gender that is the female or, uh, or woman uh, entity, uh, are all hysteric. It's that there's a particular placidness within a late Western... Uh, modern society that kind of divides people up and that people can occupy these spaces. But men can occupy the place of the hysteric and women can occupy the place of the obsessive as well. It's That's not the point. The point is to actually destroy all of that and then say at the end, there is no sexual relation, which means that anybody can kind of embody these things. And when we're relating with each other, it's not some sort of like complementarian thing that there are men and there are women and then they can kind of like, you complete me, yin yang kind of thing. It actually kind of blows all of that up and kind of says, no, there are these other kind of structural things that we need to work through. Does that make sense, Amanda? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but, but it's, no, I mean, it's, I, it's, <laughs> I might be kind yeah. of stupid. No, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like in kind of defe- like defending like the feminine wild chaos thing, he's at the same time like objectifying and slightly like dehumanizing women. Like, I don't no, but think... he's not... That, that's what I mean, though. It's it's not saying that women are that. Like, you're already presuming the gender construction. And he's saying, scrape that, and let's just think... Uh, you can almost kind of... And this is why he, he kind of, like, later tries to use, like, mathematical symbols and shit like that, because he realizes that it, people will get caught up in that. But he's trying to actually destroy that, that dichotomy itself. How? Well, the problem is, is you can only work within language, Right. So, like, he he starts with the presumption that we live in a world that has divided people up in between man and woman. And so, but then he's trying to kind of, like, disrupt that. We don't need to go into too much Lacan here. We should probably talk more about the movie. But I think think it'd be interesting to think of how is it that we can think of not just – not just trying to say that it's only that there are these beings that we call men and they have penises and then there are these beings called women and they have vaginas, but it's kind of like disrupting all of that and saying it's a place that you embody within a society that imposes those structural limitations on you. And then a film like this, by saying that nature actually disrupts all of that, is saying, okay, nature scrapes all of those identities that are constituted themselves away and helps us to then reformulate how it is that we can embody different places in society. Okay, you know but I mean? why does she keep trying to have sex with him after she's mutilated him? Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't. I mean, I mean, that to me is literally like she's crazy, and that's like fun for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I've seen this movie probably three times. The first two times, I was convinced. Like, there's no way you can 
tell me that this movie isn't misogynistic. It's literally what the movie is about. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting to entertain the other opinions. And I mean, I, I don't know. This movie is a big old question mark for me in a lot of ways, but a very hauntingly beautiful, strange looking question mark. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well and, and just so that i'm clear it might be misogynistic it yeah. might absolutely and i think that there probably are some i think that actually you asked a really good question amanda does von trier like women and you know what now that i think about it i don't think he does yeah um absolutely. I, I think and, 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 and you I don't could probably make conscious. that statement even before this movie right exactly like nymphomaniac so. yeah. did not like women like not to change well them. Nymphomaniac was about a pathologic, like it was, it was about a sexual woman who was just pathological, and it was like not like his female characters are not based on any semblance of like reality. Whereas I do feel like his male characters are. Hmm. You know, I, in Breaking the Waves, I, have to, I just have to, I don't know, I'd have to rewatch a lot of these movies to really engage with that sentiment. I mean, he's been criticized widely for his treatment of women totally, for his films. Yeah. So this is, yeah. No, yeah, this this is, is something new. Yeah. I get it. Um, so it might be worth bringing in some of what he has said. So in a statement titled Director's Confessions, Von Trier said, The work on the script did not follow my usual modus operandi. Scenes were added for no reason. Images were composed free of logic or dramatic thinking. They often came from dreams I was having at the time or dreams I'd had my entire life. Once again, the subject was nature, but in a different and more direct way than before. In a more personal way, the film does not contain any specific moral code and only has what some might call the bare necessities in the way of plot. And he closes off the statement with saying... I can offer no excuse for Antichrist. For me, the whole take on, you know, is it misogynist? I mean, if if the contention is is that because she's hysterical, you know, and but and I guess she's supposed to be sitting in for all women, then that makes it misogynist. I mean, you can make a movie where there is just a crazy woman, and that doesn't mean that it's misogynist, in my opinion. You know, but it's weird right. when it's an Edenic allegory. Where yeah, right. Like, she's like she, the essential what, woman. She's she, and right. also there's such a history of right. like everything that's like like I mean, he references it in the movie. Like women have been called crazy for everything and then killed for it, and like not taken not been taken seriously because they're crazy so it's like it's weird because he's both doing it and acknowledging that it exists and it's like a very confusing place for me well it's weird but because isn't it patronizing she's... to say that women to, to say that women like are not crazy isn't it also patronizing to no. reproduce the edenic myth to say that well women are the saviors of the world and they're the ones right who that's will also bring... problematic like both right. are and so problematic Exactly. And so that's what I wonder is, is this film, is this film (laughs) not, women are just people. (laughs) All right. Like the Zizekian reading would be like, no, that everyone is capable of being a fucked up human. Everybody sucks. Right. Right. And I think that in a way, Von Trier is kind of being a misanthrope. And that's why we have to think of it as the allegorical reading that it's about nature. Because it's about the Edenic myth, which which praises women. And the research that she was supposed to be doing on her thesis was all about how, like, women are the abused, and but, but really they're the pure and they're not the violent. And the whole thing is that, no, everything is fucked and there's nothing that will save us. 
Yeah, I mean, okay, the other thing that really bugged me was how she just kind of went from, like, zero to ten. Like, she went from, like, <laughs> from like I am trying to get over my grieving kid and I'm doing better to, like, all of a sudden she's tying, like, a wheel to his foot. And it's just, it's crazy. And well, it's it's literally crazy. It, it I literally don't crazy. actually think you would see a male character go from zero to ten like that. No, but, 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 but the zero, it's not zero to ten because she was before, she, you find out in the big twist, you know, that she... <laughs> She has been like this the whole time. She, you know, she, it was all a put on. It was a total manipulation. Her, you know, her grief in quotation. No, marks. I don't. I don't know. Yes. What the fuck? You, that, th- that, you think that that she was it's fake? It's interesting you say that because there, there is one Absolutely. bit when she's crying hysterically. And then she stops and she starts laughing. She, and she saw says the, something. Oh, but that's she like could have grief. stopped the death of the kid, and she didn't. She was okay, fucking but, but maybe, maybe, no, but, but 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 you're saying she faked all this grief, and so but then why to didn't me, she? That's the big twist of the movie. Yeah, but the she why banged didn't, her head against a toilet, like for show. Like what? But yes. why? But why would she wait until they're three or four days into the woods before she starts going crazy? Why wouldn't she just do it immediately if she's faking it? Um, because she is a master manipulator. I mean, dude, she... But there was nothing privileged about the position that she was able to get him in in which, okay, now is the time for me to hit his genitals with a log. She is also... (laughs) She had plenty of opportunities before. She's crazy. Literally, like, that is This is a horror movie. This is a psychosexual, fucked up horror movie that takes place out in the cabin, okay, that, like, with the weirdest imagery. I mean, this isn't a normal movie. It is... No one is arguing it's a normal movie. Ryan, what's what's all the stuff with um, with like nature? Like, how do you think that factors into this? I I think that you you have articulated it way better than I ever could in this podcast. Is is just that? Yeah, the universe is a chaotic place, you know, and and human beings can go that you know can go down to that level. I didn't even articulate it well that right there. I'm just saying that mm. that that yeah, it's about evil itself and it's about how I think Lars von Trier very much is a nihilist, cynical mother fucking sick fuck that that really wants women. to make a movie about how Hating much women. the earth's no no about just how much life sucks. The universe sucks. Everything sucks. I mean, women suck, men suck. Everything sucks in this movie. Like you said, Jared, it makes you feel like shit. And Lars von Trier would say, fuck yeah, I accomplished my goal with this film. He wants, this is the anti life movie. The, it, the anti You're right, you're right. And you I know? think that's why it's the great, the greatest, like Austin said earlier, it's the great movie to watch opposite Tree of Life because it's like sure. the ultimate, or instead of being like life affirming, it's life denying. Here's another good quote from Von Trier. He says, truthfully, I can only say I was driven to make this film for that these images came to me and I did not question them. My only defense is forgive me for I know not what I do. <laughs> okay. This precipitated. That's, all, that's, he's that's a total troll. Hold on. He says this precipitated a bout of giggling. And then he said, I am really the wrong person to ask what the film means or why it is as it is. It's a bit like asking the chicken about the chicken soup. <laughs> mm. See, I think this is why That's I think good. it's such a Freud. This is why it's such a Freudian film, and I don't mean that in like the Oedipal complex sense, but just like in terms of dreams, because yes. he says that. That's so interesting. I didn't know that he said that this was inspired by dreams. But if it's inspired by dreams, dreams are always weird. They're enigmatic. We don't understand them. And then the, one of the, the prime Freudian meanings that we get out of dreams is that they don't have meaning. So people who try to do that Freud's dream interpretation is that oh it means this, but really it means this. That's not at all what 
Freud is saying. The whole point is that dreams don't mean anything, and it's not until the analysis, when you're analyzing the dream afterwards, that you infuse meaning into this otherwise meaningless set of images that are kind of like erupting as the unconscious is always misrecognized. And it's always that process of misrecognition. And that's what I think we have to think about in this film, is that's why it's confusing. We don't really know what's real and what's not real. And so I, you know... Totally. I really want to know what the misogyny, what, what was she called? The misogyny consultant? Like, <laughs> Oh, what? I didn't read that. You read that. That's funny. Yeah. Though. Yeah. So he literally had a woman credited in the, in the credits as like the misogyny consultant, like ironically <laughs> referencing the fact that he's called a misogynist. And I just want to know like what her role was and if there was anything she was like, no, this went too far. Well, that probably. <laughs> so in this Ian Christie thing, there's a 1485 treatise by Catholic Church Inquisitor Heinrich Kramer called the Hammer of Witches, which is apparently where a lot of the notes in her thesis was drawn from. And this text claimed that women are by nature instruments of Satan, by nature carnal, a structural defect rooted in the original creation. So I would imagine it has something to do with that. Just like she probably helped with the production design in the attic. I would assume. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. I feel like I'm settling on he's talking about misogyny and like, reacting to it and and actually like interrogating it but he also like is misogynistic and can't mm. like take that out of his <laughs> he's throwing it in your face you know he wants to just yeah. he doesn't want to just make a comment you know like a fable about it. He, he wants to throw it in your fucking face and watch you react to it and be shocked right but if like you're like anti-semitic i don't want to see your anti-semitic film i mean that's a point to be, that's, a, <laughs> that's good a good point, point. <laughs> i'm just saying that, yeah like like Sir, it, i don't want to see he's Uwe, a transgressive right, artist see triumph of the will gg oh, allen or, came out and threw shit at people and some people think he's a great fucking artist i don't know i don't but some people i mean do. it could just be implicit bias more than anything too yeah right? no that's it's, what i'm saying and that's yeah. that's exactly i think what you just said is probably pretty spot on that he is making a film about this problematic element of gender dynamics in western society but nevertheless he can't escape his own like implicit bias towards women and that just screams in every scene. Right. Like he can't not have her not be like doing her mutilation shit without pants on. Like that's just <laughs> necessary for art reasons. I don't but know. More to just like Charlotte Gainsbourg. Like what a soldier. Can you imagine asking oh anybody God. to do the things that she does? Just give her a big old yeah. golf clap and a big old yay. <laughs> for Charlotte Gainsbourg. And let's give her a thug life. I mean she's I mean, it doesn't get any realer than yeah. her in terms of an actress or Highly an actor or anyone. A, a, a very little known movie that no one's ever seen. I would love to know what you think about this movie. It's called Jackie and the Kingdom of Women. Okay. It's somewhere out there on the internet. And it was, I think, a French movie. And it's basically like a reverse Cinderella movie where, or like reverse Handmaid's Tale, where all the men are kind of, of, of kind of like little minions of the women mm -hmm. and then and then uh the princess is throwing a big ball and all the men are trying to become her, her prince oh, you fun. gotta watch it it's jackie, it's, and, the jackie and the kingdom of women okay. it is ridiculous i'm, I'm intrigued <laughs> and she and hey. she she is the princess who who made that film i, I don't remember it, but it got no play out here no okay. I, or i don't think it even got distributed <laughs> It is interesting to think of what Von Trier's, isn't his next film, Melancholia? Yeah, so, it's called yeah. the Depression Trilogy, and this is the first one. It's mm. this, Melancholia, and then I guess Nymphomaniac. 
Nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac 1 and 2? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all one film, but I guess they just split it into it's two. It's like five hours long. Yeah. Or something. And then the house that Jack built, is a, that's just a new standalone movie? Maybe that's the third one. I haven't seen that. I haven't either, but I'm dreading it, but yeah. excited about it. All right, so you yeah, brought up the... It didn't, it didn't get me excited. A couple things I want to go through before we go into the mailbag. So uh, you brought up, Ryan, the whole shoes thing. So this is also from that Ian Christie article. He says, when Defoe discovers from the autopsy report that his son had misshapen feet and the family photographs that uh, show that she systematically put the shoes on the wrong feet, we are, of course, reminded of the devil's traditional cloven hooves. Whoa. Was she mm. grooming the child to be an antichrist? <laughs> oh. I, don't, I don't know if I necessarily... Uh, by that. Uh, and then did you guys notice at the end it was attributed to, dedicated to Tarkovsky? Yes. What yeah. the f? What the f? Like, yeah. <laughs> do you think Tarkovsky would be like, no, nah, man, I'm good. Like, yeah. I don't need this. Uh, Thanks yeah, I probably, a lot, Lars. So this, this is what Ian Christie has to say. He says, we're accustomed to the idea of nature being benevolent and healing, but for many centuries, the natural world was viewed with fear and suspicion as the source of both living and supernatural dangers. This perhaps explains the Tarkovsky dedication. It may be the harsh medieval world of Andrei Rublev or the impending nuclear apocalypse that hovers over the sacrifice or so something more elemental that he's channeling from Tarkovsky, the vivid, almost incestuous dreams of uh, Ivan's childhood or the engulfing forest of the mirror at once nurturing and threatening so he's saying that if the movie is in fact about nature which I, by the way i think is definitely the best read on this film that it's maybe just a drawing on tarkovsky's treatment of nature or something like that yeah. mm. i mean von trier has said multiple times that tarkovsky is the greatest filmmaker ever so I, mm. i'm it doesn't surprise i mean i almost wonder if it's kind of it's like a, a spiritual dedication more than like letter of the law thing just like he would say that all of his films are probably dedicated but this one for whatever reason he probably felt like it was more connected but i don't know maybe but, i, I want to spend some time also talking about just the form of this movie oh yeah. I, I mean it's so unique and so damn effective i mean part of the reason why this movie is so hard to watch is because von trier is so good at subjective filmmaking in a way that's tailor-made to make you feel like shit. <laughs> so, there, like, mm. the movie is abnormally quiet at parts. There's jump cuts, framing towards far ends of the frame, handheld camera. It's not at all concerned about maintaining focus. There are explicitly jarring cuts. They'll cut mid-camera movement. It's deliberately ugly and unnerving. The dialogue is extremely bassy. There's the weird breathing lenses, melting landscapes. You guys know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're distorted in the background. There's one moment that really speaks to just how highly subjective the camera movement is. Um, so when the acorns first start falling on the ceiling, they're sleeping. And as soon as Willem Dafoe's character wakes up, the camera widens out when the first one drop drops. It's like identifying with their perspective. And it, this is what is done throughout the whole thing. So it's not only that the characters on screen are feeling like shit, but he will just grab you and put you into their perspective as much as he can. I love the one when they're when they're fucking on the bed and then it goes right into the roses, like the dead ends of the roses. Yeah. Oh, the I mean? nature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I love the one where they're fucking in the woods and like all the hands too. come out. Yeah, That's so a, the tree. That was my favorite moment of the movie. Far, I love the one just, when they're fucking so in the. Uh, you guys were just saying you love the one. When they're fucking. <laughs> <laughs> no, like what was the hand thing? Like I actually think the hand thing might have been kind of feminist. Well, are they all? De they're all dead women, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Right. Here's here's the interesting thing. At the very end. The the uh, the epilogue um, is or I'm sorry the prologue 
um, wait, which one? The epilogue at the end. Um, where all the women are kind of like coming out of the woods and they descend upon him. But then at the same time, prior to that, the scene before that, he's walking and you just see a bunch of like dead people, right? And so it's like almost like that he's surrounded by death, that nature is just death. What's going on with the women kind of ascending upon him at the end? Are they coming to crush him, to kill him? They're not his savior, I can't imagine, because they're quite menacing. No? I think they're just pass- they're passing by him and their faces are blurred. Which was also yeah. weird. So they're explicitly women. They're just passing him, though. They're they're not, you know, like he's already enveloped in them by the time it cuts to credits. So I don't think they're trying to kill him, but there okay. is definitely something deliberate about the fact that they're all women and their faces are blurred. And that she was doing her thesis on uh, gyne- gyne- gynocide. So like yeah. it's, I think it's like the legacy of women who have been killed by the patriarchy Ah, like i think it was like an attempt at like a feminist statement i just well it's interesting jared because you've you've got all the the dogma elements of like the shaky kind of uh subjective camera movements kind of crash zooms and jump cuts and things like that but then you also have like like uh, i think it was either ryan or jared mentioned at the beginning these beautiful hd slow-mo alexa shots and then also, you've also the opening scene, the black and white, as much as there's kind of um, a messiness about some of the camera movements, there's also like a perfection about some of it. Like mm-hmm. there's this one shot in particular where it's them having sex and the camera moves to like three different um, uh, like focal positions. Um, and so it like zooms into the camera and then it pulls out and then it like pulls out again. So you can, you act, your, your focus is actually on like three different points, but it's the same camera shot. And so there's also at the same time this really like perfect formalistic um, intent that kind of juxtaposes the messiness. And I think that is really interesting as well, how he uses both at certain points to kind of disrupt the the viewing experience and he does that in melancholia as well melancholia is maybe a little bit more uh on the perfection side though it's a little bit more stylized even i also feel like the jump cuts are really good at making you like occupy the mind of somebody who's like a little bit crazy Mm. because i would be like did i just blink and like miss like a very reasonable cut to a different shot or but then i'd be Mm. like i started to realize no it's literally just all jump shot the movie's trying to drive you crazy yeah literally (laughs) and it worked (laughs) i'm crazy right now for sure uh all right anything else you guys want to bring oh we didn't talk about the three beggars I don't really have much to say about this. I don't even know what that is, yeah. So there's pain, despair, and grief. Uh-huh. The bird, the do- the doe, and the fox, chaos reigns. Uh, the best descriptor of it that I was able to dig up is that whereas the three kings heralded birth in the Christ story, the three beggars herald death in Antichrist. I like that explanation. Mm. But uh, I didn't really have anything besides that. Because Von Trier says that he... So first of all, this whole movie was born out of the fact that he underwent some severe depression for like two years. And he had underwent some sort of like shamanistic, psychedelic experience to try and draw him out of it. And apparently there he met a fox that looks like the fox in the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, also, yeah, uh, uh, another behind-the-scenes thing. He, there's all these weird stories of on-set, crazy kind of on-set behavior where he he basically, like, the producers knew he was going through stuff while he was making this movie, but he wanted to be making it still, and, and he would be just in his trailer and just kind of sometimes be like, all right, we're not going to film today. Lars can't make it out, <laughs> you know, but wow. that was just part of the oh, process. Shit. And then 
and on top of you know putting Charlotte Gainsborough through hell, and uh, yeah, there was some weird. And, and you know, he would like he 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 never flies anywhere. You know about that that about him little oh, I didn't know. oh little like trivia fact right. I did not know that. He's scared to death of it. Huh. Yeah. Weird. Or he'll like me. Well, wait. So he took a boat to Cannes? Probably. <laughs> okay. Makes sense. Well, he can't go anymore. He's kicked out. That's true. Yeah. No, didn't didn't he come back? Wasn't Jack or whatever? Yeah, I, I think didn't I think that's play? right. He is. He, he did get unpersona like, non grata. He did? Yeah. I, he did, yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Because his last film, cool. the one that, that you guys were talking about, the one that stars uh, Matt Dillon or whatever, uh, played there. Yeah. Hmm. All right, we're going to go into the mailbag. Uh, hit us up at 213-534-8807. Or? Or 21ElfGut07. That's right. Let's Elf Hut. El- or Elf Hut. Yeah, it's fine. Either I, way. I, I'm trying to figure out which one I like better. I kind of I, Elf Hut makes more sense. Elf Gut is kind of weird. Why? Uh, I think all elves have guts. Sure, but Elf They got to worry gut? about gut bacteria, I, too. I, I guess I like Elf Gut, but Elf Hut, it seems fun. I want to go to the Elf oh, Hut. Oh, yeah. It's I don't like want to go to the Hut. Elf Gut. I don't. I want. I want nothing to do with elf guts. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> it's full of candy. Okay, so we're gonna hear from Anon Striking Vipers. What you got? Hey, uh, first time caller, long time listener, I guess. Uh, so I just listened to the Wise Pack episode on Striking Vipers, um, and I definitely had some opinions on how the episode kind of just missed a lot of opportunities when it came to analyzing relationship dynamics. Um, especially with the way that dating apps have kind of evolved relationships into uh, more polyamory-focused, more hookup-focused. Um, a lot of more people, I think, definitely are interested in sort of kink relationships now, too. And you also have a lot of chances to kind of analyze that sort of dominant, submissive size in relationships if the wife had joined in, for example, on the game um, and had taken more of an active role. Um, if the characters themselves were more open to exploring polyamory between uh, Carl, the wife, and I forget what Anthony Mackey's character was called. Um, it would have definitely been a lot more fascinating in terms of seeing how relationships are evolving with dating apps with virtual reality. Uh, going off of the, um, what, was the what was the term called? Uh, off Avatar, where the last Avatar example that you guys gave, um, with how Avatars affect how uh, people interact after they've gone out of the simulation, looking at how maybe uh, those character relationships change based off the way they interact in terms of the relationship itself, not just in terms of, oh, hey, we're going to see if uh, Anthony Mack's character and Carl kiss and then nothing happens off that. No, seeing how the characters themselves change based off of their roles within the simulation within Striking Vipers, it would have been a much better opportunity in terms of analyzing relationship dynamics and how games and how virtual reality affect them. Um, anyway, it's just my thoughts. Also, I thought it was interesting how, uh, I forget his name, but the, uh, the other uh, speaker during this episode was basically pushing for an orgy in the game of, hey, why didn't the wife join in? Hey, I think Carl invite a few of his uh, guys and, like, girlfriends into the game. That was just kind of fun. Um, but anyways, let me... Thanks, Anon. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, it's interesting how a lot of people are 
look at that episode with, I thought they were going to say blank or I wish they would have said blank because obviously there's a lot of other things with gender, obviously with the guy inhabiting an avatar of a woman. There's also the whole race thing with Mm -hmm. them being black men and both inhabiting the avatar of Asians. But the episode didn't really take a stance and just kind of raised questions with all those issues, which I don't know, I think is a solid choice. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, I it you cool. can't please everybody. I think sometimes asking the question is enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I see. I thought the episode did take a stand. I just thought it was the weak liberal stand rather than the more radical left stand, which is what I think the caller is insinuating. And it was me that mentioned why didn't the wife join in? Why didn't they explore these different themes? I think there was a real lost opportunity to be able to explore Mm. these larger issues of pansexuality and things like that, that the film or the episode kind of hints at, Mm -hmm. but then it ultimately backs off and it retreats by just making this some sort of contractual thing at the end where they have an agreement, which again, contract is just like abstract rights, Hobbesian liberalism and I was kind of like I, I thought that was kind of like a cheap choice it would have been much more interesting to go into like the radical construction of identity itself and I think that's what the the speakers talk or the, the caller was talking about with like exploring polyamory in a much more inventive and creative way I, I would have liked to have seen that but I mean I can't fucking hate on somebody for not making the film that I would have made or something like that you know right but so. it is still like fundamentally like they're still repressed 364 days a year. So like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I I see. I see what you're saying. That's interesting. And that was my, that was my frustration is that it doesn't deal with that repression. Because remember it it all came down to how you interpret it. Was there that look of forlorn and that they just couldn't actually kiss in real life because they were too beholden to the pressures of societal expectations. And so there are these issues of black queer identity that could Mm -hmm. have been explored, I think a little bit more fruitfully, but again, they just retreat to, I think kind of safe response, which is, well, I've, Got, you know, it, it makes sense. I've got an email that directly addresses this idea of repression that you're talking about. Interested in what you guys think about this. So this email is from John. He says, I think there's a missing perspective from your podcast on Striking Vipers, and that is of Danny. Carl is single and adventurous, so he is much more interesting in the sense of exploring sexuality in the virtual world. But Danny has family, so his perspective connected to me personally since I have a family with small children. And I'm also somebody who has seen a steep drop in my sex life due primarily to a sense of boredom in my relationship. I don't think you really explored that dimension either because you didn't relate or because you didn't want to admit you relate. I don't blame you if it's the latter. I think that if I was a character in any fiction, my marriage would be doomed, but I don't feel that way. I make up for a lack of passionate love. What's 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 funny? (laughs) I make up for a lack of passionate love with platonic love. I love the family we have in our home. It's not perfect, but I am happy and committed. That is my true self. That is the me I aspire to be. My sexuality is going off in a different direction, but I am not only my sexuality, and I feel a bit lonely sometimes. Mm. It's funny because one of the ways I've tried to deal with this is to, to develop closer relationships with my dude friends. And surprise, surprise, we bond over video games. Right now, mm. there is a barrier between me and them sexually since I'm not aroused by the, the idea of having sex with a man. But maybe strong VR could break that restriction. Changing my friends mm. into avatars I am attracted to or possibly even artificially changing my sexual preferences based on the preferences of my own avatar. Anyway, I found this episode very powerful since it's basically about me and it affirms the duality of my existence. Danny isn't a bad guy. He gets his family life and his tryst with his bro at the end. This makes me hopeful for my future. Every other piece mm. of fiction would have me told that I was a terrible person for staying in a less than passionate relationship from John. Amen, John. Yeah, I, 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 I think I agree. I don't well, think that we need to uh, 
politicize the fact that not everybody will get to have a uh, ecstatic, passionate life. Well, and what I was going to say to y'all's points or a second ago is that I'm glad that they didn't go in the, the direction that y'all are saying. Like, I'm, I, I liked it. It was like a, it was about two best friends and their favorite video game, and that at some point technology advanced to where they could fuck as them. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that is what this show, this one hour Black Mirror episode was about. And it was great in that sense. I'm glad that, that John related to it in that idea. And, that, and it is kind of a bittersweet, you know, uh, 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 ending, you know, like everyone gets what they want, but are they really happy? And you kind of qu- have the, that question at the end, you know, but it's kind of inspiring that they're making it work at the same time. It's the modern family, you know, very uh, modern. Uh, so I think it's uh, I, I'm, that was a good email. John. I Thanks. highly appreciate John's honesty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that maybe the only reason we didn't get into it is just because we didn't have time. But that experience of, of losing your sexual desire in a long term relationship is extremely common. Right. But I love what is it, John? I love what he said that he kind of has these other ways of experiencing what he called platonic love. But I would even say let's not let's not say that, but it's libidinal love. It's erotic love. It is still desire and playing a video game. And that's one of the things that's interesting about uh, striking vipers is that there's a a libidinal investment into those things. It doesn't mean you literally want to fuck everybody you play a video game with, but libido is just pleasure, and it's like this erotic impulse that is kind of, that is like calling you into things. And I think that we can find that in video games, or in family, or in sport, or in books that we read, or in movies, and or in podcasting. So let's just embrace the fact that we're all kind of like libidinally engaging with each other right now, and it's lovely and wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) It's adorable. Um, All right. We are all still reeling from Antichrist, so I'm going to do one more from the mailbag. Also, if you guys want to send us an email, it's movies at wisecrack.co. Uh, this one is from Mike. He's uh, This is about Toy Story 4. You guys see Toy Story 4? Oh, man, no, no I haven't. I haven't. I'm gonna, uh, I'm yeah, oh, you want me to spoil week? it? Yeah. All right, I don't, want, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, okay, thanks, uh, do we have another Striking Vipers? <laughs> all right, we'll do, everyone seems to have seen Striking Vipers, so um, da-da-da-da-da. So this one is uh, more about what I was saying before. This one is from Christian. He says, just listen to your podcast on the Black Mirror episode, Striking Vipers, and I wanted to share my two main thoughts. One, technology extends sexuality. Danny and Carl both seem to be extremely distraught about their sexual encounters via this new technology. This either means they had these feelings all along and were hiding them, or the technology has created a new branch of their sexuality. I would argue it's the latter. Mm-hmm. That's actually me saying that, not him. Um, this is back to the email. I feel that the kiss scene establishes in the canon that there are two straight men whose sexuality is only extended by technology but remains intact. So instead of being turned gay (laughs) by the video game, they are shown that their sexuality has other levels that their biology won't allow them to explore, which echoes the sentiments from the cult classic Videodrome, Uh which leads me to my second point. Striking Vipers is a trans metaphor. Mm -hmm. I've heard a few people mock this episode for being a no bro, it's not gay bro, this doesn't mean we're gay bro piece of media, when I feel like its message was a bit different. I see it as saying sexuality, which is usually considered based on biology, i.e. someone being born straight or gay can instead be influenced by technology this allows carl to be a straight man and with the help of technology he can explore sexuality as a straight woman though the idea wasn't explicitly stated in the episode i see some strong trans themes being approached through the metaphor of virtual reality in video games whether it is helpful or hurtful i think it's hard to deny that striking vipers is making an attempt to explore transsexuality in a way that reaches people who don't have any experience with it So, I mean, I would, so first of all, I definitely agree with the technology extending sexuality thing. As far as striking vipers as trans metaphor, 
I mean, it's he, it's funny he says that I think it's hard to deny that it's making an attempt to explore this, but I would almost say I think it's hard to deny that it's evading ex- exploring this because it seems like it's so that's what everyone would expect. It's so and even in that conversation where uh, Carl in the Asian woman's avatar explains what it's like to be a female and a female orgasm, there isn't really anything about like, oh, I'm feeling a new sense of identity or a quote unquote real sense of identity that would have more explicitly connected with trans issues. So I feel like, yes, because the premise seems like it's very ripe for trans issues, I think the episode is pretty much avoiding it. Yeah. It's not a, I mean, that was yeah. that was kind of one one of my things was is it's not necessarily inherently problematic. And I don't mean in the culture war sense, but I mean philosophically like that it doesn't explore enough or whatever. But I don't think that it's inherently problematic that they necessarily embody the heteronormative relationship. But I do think there is something limiting in it that it is interesting that the only way they can relate to each other in their like avatar selves is via the heteronormative relationship of uh a boy and a girl or a man and a woman. And like right? a hyper masculine, hyper feminine man and woman. Yeah. Yeah. And and we could say it's it's problematic, or we could say it's interesting mm-hmm. because that shows the limitation of the societal restraints that even though they have some level of freedom in this virtual world, that they still can't escape these other constraints. I think that's totally right. right. But do you also think that when you're playing a video game with your buddy, and it's a video game that you guys have played a lot, you have a character that you play and you're good at that character and i feel like if you extend that metaphor that you're probably better at sex with the character that you're really (laughs) familiar with too but it's still just interesting that he gravitated towards a woman like a hyper feminine woman in as much as when they were playing the non-vr version he gravitated towards a woman as well yeah when you say, does it say something, you know, if I pick Princess Peach, you know, from in Mario Kart? It says something. I don't know if it's anything relevant. <laughs> but yeah. It definitely says something. And I think we should explore this on my couch, Ryan. <laughs> when, when he said like, you know, oh, like some people called this, uh, uh, I'm not gay, bro. This isn't gay, bro. Piece of media. I mean, I... It literally of, is. I, I yeah. think it, that is kind of a funny genre, yeah. subgenre, because it is like, like, to, like the only way that they're cool with it is like, oh well, it's a guy and a girl, you know. So, yeah, that that you know, that's. But not I don't gay, think it's that they're you know? cool. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if they were both of their mains, you know, using mains as mains, main characters, you know, like nerd speak. If their mains mm-hmm. were both dudes, maybe they would have fucked as dudes. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't but think so. I don't know. I think it's a very specific so. choice. I think it's it's about the primacy of, like, heterosexuality that, like, even though he's, like, a man embodying a woman that's still more acceptable than being two men, like, embody, like, experiencing their desire together. Definitely. It's a whole whole different thing. I'm just speculating about the lore. My speculation is that if both of their mains were men, that they would not have hooked up. Yeah, I agree. And that it's only because Carl was a woman that that they thought about it. They're like, hmm, I could have sex with you right now. Okay. See, now the sequel Striking Viper should be when it's like, you know, one of them's a Kirby and the other one's a Jigglypuff. And they're like, what do we do? Oh my God, the imagery. (laughs) Well, he does fuck a polar bear, remember. That's true. He does fuck a polar bear. Uh, All right. Well, we're going to end it on fucking polar bears. Where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. Oh, man. You can find me on that YouTube, baby. 
on uh, uh, I got a game show called Ryan's Game Show. I have my garage that I'm moving out of this week. It's so sad. R.I.P. Garage. Uh, after eight years, but uh, uh, and Ryan Shorts release comedy shorts every week. But uh, but because I've been moving, haven't done it in about a week or two. Go back and watch the old ones, though. I think you, you know, know you guys. Think well, she lives on that street now. Levada. You live on Levita Ter- yeah, yeah. Terrace. Yeah, awesome. You, all of my stuff is on the sidewalk right now. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. We'll talk addresses later. Um, you can find me. I tweet sporadically at, at Amanda Shirker. And Austin. Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. We actually did a, an episode on Striking Vipers as well. It was a bonus episode, but we'll be releasing it on the main stream in a, in a, I don't know, a couple months probably. Or, a, I mean, a couple weeks probably. So, But you can check that shit out. All right, guys. We're going to sign off. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Peace. Chaos. Later. Everyone together now. Chaos Rain.